0: The opinions expressed in The Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in The Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. I recently read the book, Moonlighting, an oral history by Scott Ryan. This is, rather bizarrely, the first book about the 80s phenomenon, Moonlighting, the show that reinvigorated Sybil Shepherd's career and gave unto the world Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis played smart talking detective David Addison and Shepherd, former glamour model, Maddie Hayes. Hayes comes into Addison's orbit when her manager embezzles all her money, Leaving her with nothing but the tax write off businesses she owned, one of which, the City of Angels Detective Agency, is run by Addison. The series pilot episode, written by creator Glenn Gordon-Carron and directed by the king of the TV pilots, Robert Butler, sees David try to convince Maddie to keep City of Angels running, whilst the duo also get involved in a bizarre case centering around a watch that points the way to a cache of Nazi diamonds. The plot as with most Moonlighting episodes, wasn't that important. What was important was that even to my 13-year-old self, this show was clearly different. Sure, it had the 80s high concept, former model turns detective, solves crimes, but beyond that, Moonlighting essentially prefigured 21st century television. It looked sleek, somehow of a higher quality than the other US imports of the same vintage. The dialogue was rapid fire and really funny, It blurred the lines between comedy and drama. The plots were frequently ridiculous and treated as such, such as when a character got out of a tough situation by breaking the fourth wall, such as when David told Maddie he solved a case during the commercial. But more than anything else, Moonlighting was sexy. In the pilot alone, David Addison has more quips per line of dialogue than even the sharpest comedy shows of the era and they're all perfectly delivered by Bruce Willis, an unknown at the time of his casting. He's offset magnificently by Sybil Shepherd. Maddie is as smart as she is beautiful, more than a capable foil for Addison's constant quippage, and she could wear a power suit like no one else on television. It's one of the best leading roles on TV at that time for a woman. And both of them oozed sex appeal. The audience fancied either, or both of them, Now, remember in the 80s, there weren't a lot of sexy shows on TV. Sexist, sure. Shows with sexy people, absolutely. The Fall Guy, for example, had two of the most attractive women of the era as part of the cast. But no one would say The Fall Guy was a sexy show. Moonlighting didn't try hard to be sexy. It was sexy. Willis and Shepard may have grown apart as the series went on, but you wouldn't know that from watching them. It's a cliché to talk about chemistry between actors on TV shows, but I defy anyone who watched this show when it erred to not think that each scene was going to culminate with each actor tearing the clothes off the other. Honestly, I think the real secret to casting this show wasn't that the producers cast people who could play Maddie and David, they cast people who were Maddie and David. Here's the moment Maddie and David meet for the very first time. Hello. Hello. Wow.
1: My goodness, Mr. Pesto, we're looking a little pale today, aren't we? And who have we here? I don't know. Just came- Now, now, no reason to be shy. Let's see a little confidence, a little charisma, a little Dale Carnegie. Remember, lesson one, imagine your entire audience is completely naked. Boggles the mind, does it? Amps great, will you? Terrible thing, shyness. Believe me, I know. But don't worry. We're going to get her the best help there is, better than the best. She's come a long way already. Why, when I first found her, she was nothing but a poor little urchin, out in the street, urchin But you don't want to hear
2: that. I don't want to hear that.
1: Okay. So my name is David Addison, and your name is Maddie Hayes. Maddie Hayes, and
2: don't I know you? No, I don't think we've met.
1: No, wait a second. Can't fool me. The eyes don't lie. Not these babies. Photographic. See something once and it's locked in there forever.
2: Really? I didn't notice anything locked in there. No,
1: no, changing the subject. You're looking at a bloodhound. Once that's I'm on the well something, i get, not... get it.
2: All right. You might have seen my picture somewhere. I knew it. No flies on you.
1: Nope, there certainly aren't. Whatever that means
2: now, then when I can what are we
1: talking? Time, late seventies? Here's a little fuzzy for me, but I will bet the house that you were a Miss March.
2: A uh, miss, what,
1: Miss March? A playmate of the month. What about nineteen seventy six? You see the whole layout in my head. You like jazz, your favorite movie with Jonathan Livingston Seagull, you wanted to help underprivileged kids. Am I right or am I right? I mean, I can see the whole layout in my head. And if you don't mind me saying so, you are even more beautiful now, here, in my office, completely dressed, almost a decade later. Wow. So. Listen, bub.
2: Knock that high school locker room grin off your face or I'll knock it off for you. I'm not Miss March, Miss May, or Miss anything else. For your information, I am Ms. Madeline Hayes, and I own this dump. Madeline Hayes?
1: Madeline Hayes? You're Maddie Hayes? The Maddie Hayes? The Blue Moon Girl? Blue Moon Shampoo? Sure, Blue Moon Shampoo. The only shampoo with milk, honey,
2: and a, a tablespoon table of Tablespoon of moonbeams in every bottle.
1: Sure, you're her? That's you? The girl in the bottle, the girl from the ads, the girl that was everywhere. I knew I'd seen you. God, I got to tell you, I love you. I mean, I I have always loved you. Really, truly, nothing personal. So what is it you want to tell old Dave?
2: You're fired.
0: The snappy patter on display here was new to 13-year-old me who got in on the ground floor with Moonlighting, watching the pilot episode when it aired on BBC One on Monday the 26th of May at 9.50 in the evening. It was a May Day bank holiday, and Moonlighting was sandwiched in between the at-that-time king of light entertainment comedy, Russ Abbott, and the football. But Moonlighting was sublime. I'd never seen anything like Moonlighting. It wasn't formulaic, the dialogue tripped over itself, the characters argued often over the top of each other, the music, mostly Motown hits from the 60s, made the show seem somehow timeless, even as Maddie's shoulder pads got bigger and bigger. The gleeful way it mocked, upended and disregarded television convention was a joy to behold, and yet, despite it all, we started to care about the characters. Maddie had layers, and Sybil Shepard, whatever other issues she may have had, made her sympathetic and likeable but never anyone's fool. David Addison may have been a smart-ass, but he was a decent detective and quite emotional, as we see in the pilot and the subsequent series. Bob Butler, whose other pilot credits included Star Trek, Lewis and Clark, a moonlighting-inspired show, if ever there was one, Hill Street Blues, and Batman, amongst many others, directs with panache, giving both actors moments to shine, be they comedic or dramatic. The pilot works because the comedy is funny, and the dramatic beats land. Dennis Lipscomb is a chilling bad guy, and of course his henchman is Brian Thompson. The finale, set in and around the Eastern Columbia building in LA, is a masterclass of tense editing and cutting. Even at this stage, we know moonlighting isn't going for gritty realism or kitchen sink drama. It's a version of reality, not actual reality, but the dangerous moments still need to feel real. And in this instance, Bob Butler pulls it off. Kudos also to Shepard and Willis. The big climax involves one or both of the actors dangling precariously from what looks like a mighty height, and there doesn't look like any green screen or rear projection work. It all looks totally real. After this adventure, Maddie decides to keep the detective agency open. David points out that she was famous for a series of commercials she did for Blue Moon Shampoo and they renamed the detective agency Blue Moon Detective Agency and we're off into the series. I was charmed. I would, I decided as I ambled to bed, be back for the next episode. Bizarrely moved over to BBC Two. Maybe someone at the Beeb decided Moonlighting was a little too off the wall for a mainstream audience. The gags about American network TV a little too inside baseball. Still, it meant I didn't have to wait long, as BBC2 aired the next episode, Gunfight at the So-So Corral, the following Thursday, the 29th of May, in its regular time slot of 9.30. The first season of Moonlighting was short, even for a mid-season replacement, with only six episodes including the pilot. I mean, technically every season of Moonlighting was shot. The show never managed to complete a full season of 22 episodes, mainly because the shooting schedule of the show could never, ever even be remotely described as normal. Gunfight at the So-So Corral sees Maddie and David try to find a man's son before he can die. Sadly, it turns out that the man, Pat Corley, is an aged hitman out to find the young competition, Alien Nation's Gary Graham, to give him some sage advice. It's a reasonable episode to kick off the series with some decent scenes, quotable dialogue and a deepening of Maddy's sentimental side, but it's not as good as the pilot. Read the mind, see the movie, as Maddy and David investigate industrial espionage and is funny and light, but we're not quite there yet. The next murder you hear as Maddy and David finagle themselves into the investigation of a late night talk radio host, another good episode with fast talking Addison at his best. It was also the first appearance of what would become a moonlighting staple, the we're not taking this case conversation.
1: Now that is what I call a case. Sex, violence, hit tunes. If we crack this thing, i will make a movie about it. Mel Gibson will play my life. I'll go on TV. I'll talk to David Hartman, Barbara Walters. Women from all over the country will send me letters, make lewd suggestions. Is this a wild country or what?
2: Heartbreak hotline, you're on the air. We're not taking this case. Get out of town! Paul McCain is a disgusting human being. He's dead! Good, he got what he deserved. You don't know that. Given the amoral way he lived his life, his violent death comes as no surprise to me. <laughs> You're mad because he boinked a couple house frogs? I'm not having this conversation. We're not taking this case.
0: <laughs> the season continued with Next Stop Murder and Agatha Christie Pastiche. When Miss DiPesto wins a prize to spend a weekend on the murder train, Maddie and David get stuck with her. However, the detectives are needed when the fake murder weekend becomes all too real. Next Stop Murder is my favourite episode of the first season. It gets the show out of LA for a bit and gives some screen time to Miss Agnes DePesto, played by the charming Elise Beasley. So far, Miss DiPesto has been there just to be the rhyming secretary and be Addison's straight man. But when she's given something substantial to do, she becomes an important part of the cast. The first season concluded with The Murders in the Mail, in which Maddie and David become embroiled in a complex plot concerning Russian triple agents. But it's better remembered for the conclusion.
2: Name, please? David Addison. Madeline Hayes. I'm sorry, but you're not on
1: the guest list. That's because we're not guests. We're looking for a man with a mole on his nose. Mole on his nose? A
2: mole on his nose. What kind of clothes? What kind of clothes?
1: What kind of clothes do you suppose? What kind of clothes do I suppose would be worn by a man with a mole on his nose? Who knows? Did I happen to mention, did I bother to disclose this man that we're seeking with a mole on his nose? I'm not sure of his clothes or anything else except he's Chinese. A big clue by itself.
2: How do you do that? Got to read a lot of Dr. Seuss. I'm sorry to say I'm sad to report I haven't seen anyone at all of that sort. Not a man who's Chinese with a mole on his nose with some kind of clothes that you can't suppose. So, Get away from this door and get out of this place or I'll have to hurt you. Put my foot in your face. Oh, time to go. Time to go.
0: After that tongue-twisting exchange, it all culminates in a custard pie fight. I don't think that ever happened on Heart to Heart. Moonlighting's first season was witty and slick, but it barely scratched the surface of what the show would become. The second season would refine this formula. The outlandish final chase, as seen in the last episode of the first season, would become the norm as Moonlighting eschewed the fistfight or the car chase for more elaborate and choreographed set pieces. The second season opened with Brother Can You Spur a Blonde, which featured Charles Rocket as David's brother, Richie, but is just as notable for featuring the first in a series of cold opens, which would have Maddie and David directly address the audience.
2: Hi, I'm Madeline Hayes, and this is David Addison.
1: Right. And we'd just like to take a minute or two before the show starts to welcome you back to another season of Moonlighting. That's right. That's wrong. Wait a second. I don't second. know why what? I'm here.
2: I don't know what I'm doing here. You're here because we're welcoming
1: people back to another season. Huh? You're here because the network wants us to welcome the viewers Double, back. Double, huh? You're here because Lou told you to say do it. We say it.
2: I can say it. The network says tonight's show is too short. The network says every show has to be one hour long, not 59 minutes, not 61 minutes, on, 60 minutes long, and we're a minute short. Great,
1: now the whole world knows. Mr. Thermopolis, and you know Mr. Ehrlich, We're a minute I'm short? short. Karen, get because my agent on the phone, please. Not you because I'm talking. with slow down once in a while. Maybe we have when a show that lasts an
2: hour. That's it, I've That's had it. That's it. If, if the producers want to welcome, welcome the viewers, viewers back, back they can do it themselves. Cut. How's that? Sorry, Sybil. Sorry, Bruce. Too short. Too short? And you know why, don't
1: you? Don't even
2: think about blaming us
1: It's not because I'm talking too fast, because you're talking Start when I'm show. talking. Start the show. Start the show? Start the
0: show. Welcome back. These cold opens would frequently be the funniest parts of the episodes, and it's a real shame that at least two of them are missing from the DVD set. It also set the template for the season, in that these early episodes would focus on deepening David's character, here he'd be given an old flame in the form of the delectable dana delaney in knowing her and an ex-wife in season three's big man on mulberry street season two however continued with money talks maddie walks which sees maddie confront the man who stole all her money and the show would delve deeper into its literary allusions and film references from this point forward the Lady in the Iron Mask, one of the funniest episodes of the early days, is a wonderfully cocky and romp featuring a beautifully delivered and still relevant monologue from Maddie about no meaning no. Sadly, the conclusion, a frankly absurd and wonderful chase scene, is ruined on DVD by the inexplicable music replacement of the William Tell overture in the final scenes. The episode was edited to this piece of music, so to replace it for the sake of a few cents is inexcusable. It's also mystifying, as the William Tell overture appears in at least two other episodes on this same box set. Further nods to the classics would follow, with My Fur David homaging My Fur Lady, as Maddie takes on the almost impossible task of turning David into a sensible and mature adult. Portraits of Maddie would see the duo investigate an artist's death, an artist obsessed with Maddie Hayes. The aforementioned knowing her starts out as a pretty straightforward crime noir, involving Dana Delaney as a divorcee, Gillian, trying to get out of an unhappy marriage. Matters are complicated by Gillian being an old flame of David's. Events culminate in true Moonlighting fashion, but for the most part, knowing her is the perfect average episode of Moonlighting rather than a completely off-the-wall episode. The case is a well-written, twisty, turny noir, making good use of the fame fatale trope, and it bounces from emotionally resonant to funny and back again with ease. It's a great episode to show people who've never seen the show. In fact, this was a great run of episodes, frequently funny and inventive, with the show using Star Trek director of photography Jerry Finneman's lighting skills to full effect. It took extra time to light Maddie with the same soft focus as 40s noir actors, something not lost on film buff Sybil Shepard. The mixing of screwball comedy, fast and funny dialogue, noir-tinged murder mysteries and silly conclusions were becoming the norm, and so Moonlighting decided to shake things up. It did so in spectacular fashion. Nothing could prepare the audience, for the dream sequence always rings twice. Apparently the singer Rita had an affair with trumpet player Zack. The two then colluded with each other to murder Rita's husband although both went to the electric chair maintaining that the other did the actual crime. Maddie believes that Zack must have taken advantage of Rita because her experience of men has not been overtly positive. David counters that women can be just as fatal. And how does she know that Zack wasn't confounded by Rita? As usual for Moonlighting, it develops into the age-old battle of the sexes, with David pointing out that Maddie is a sexist. She sees a woman before she sees them as a person. This is still an incredibly timely argument. At what point do you only see your own agenda? Can any of us really be impartial? At 12 minutes in, the episode then switches to monochrome, as we first see Maddie's version of events, and then David's, both in the form of dreams, hence the title. In totality, 37 of the 49 minutes are in black and white. Dream sequence was unprecedented at the time. Writers Deborah Frank and Carl Sauter pitched the idea all over town, but were rejected by Skirker and Mrs King, Crazy Like a Fox, amongst others. Only Glenn Gordon Caron saw the potential of the idea. He convinced the network to go for it, even denying them when the network asked the show be filmed in colour and then they'd bleed the colour out and broadcast it in black and white. Director Peter Werner came up with the idea of filming the dream sequences differently. Maddie's is an MGM musical, all soft focus and glistening diamonds, whilst David's is a Warner Brothers crime caper, all long shadows and noirish voiceover. The episode took 16 days to film, over double that of a regular TV episode of the time, and cost a whopping $2 million. However, all of the money is on screen, with lavish musical numbers, a large cast of extras, and a magnificent musical arrangement from Simpsons maestro Alf Clausen. Kudos especially to Sybil Shepherd, who essays not one, not two, but three different characters in this episode. Her regular role as Maddie Hayes, the naive and gullible reader of her own dream sequence and the femme fatale reader of David's dream. It's an acting performance she's never really been given due credit for. She also joins that select group of actors who are stunningly beautiful in black and white. The episode, rather unusually and bravely from a narrative point of view, doesn't solve the decades-old cold case. On any other show, that would have been the point. On Moonlighting, it was just the backdrop. There's an old adage. In Hollywood, no one wants to be first, but everyone wants to be second. And such it was here. Following Moonlighting, every show did a black and white episode, and every show did a musical episode. Moonlighting did both at once. The season continued on an upward trajectory. Somewhere over the rainbow is a horribly cliched look at the Irish and sees Maddie and David hired to help a leprechaun, but it's quite sweet, despite the stereotyping. Twas the episode before Christmas is a fun retelling of the Christmas story, and heavy on Miss DiPesto. As such, this is a prelude to North by North DiPesto, the first annual Miss DiPesto episode, designed to give Willis and Shepard a break. Atlas Belched sees Maddy sell the agency to a big conglomerate, much to David's chagrin, and The Bride of Tupperman is another exceptionally funny Battle of the Sexes episode that suffers from David being a tad too sexist in places and an expository explanation of the case when the writers simply run out of room. David's sexism was often played up as him simply trying to get under Maddy's skin but he never seemed to have any problems with women in authority. He had no issue with a female boss and as we'll discover later it's not that his ex-wife cheated on him with a woman it's that she cheated on him. The gender of his wife's lover was irrelevant to it. I've seen a few people say that in today's cancel culture, David Addison wouldn't last five minutes, but he's often far more open-minded than Maddie, as seen in The Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice. Seeing him played as purely a sexist, as in this episode, does a disservice to his character. In God, we strongly suspect, has a great cold open, discussing the off-mooted 3D episode, which sadly never happened, although the producers did do a test for such a show. Every daughter's father is a virgin doesn't actually feature a case. However, David is working on one in the background. Instead, the story sees Maddie discover her father is being unfaithful to her mother and how she deals with it. Witness for the execution deals with euthanasia and surprisingly, Maddie and David are on opposite sides of the argument. Who'd have thunk it? An elderly man wishes to die rather than have his life prolonged further by machines and wants Maddie and David to witness his arranged murder so they can testify it was an accident. Maddie is appalled, David sees the guy's point, but when David is accused of the man's murder, it's up to Maddie to clear his name. This episode is another good one, but most notable for the continuity cock-ups during the scene with David's disappearing and reappearing shaving foam and the duo's first non-dream sequence kiss. Sleep-talking Guy sees David hit a lucky streak when a high-class call girl named Toby hits him up with information. One of her Johns talks in his sleep, and he's a well-connected attorney for the mob. Toby sells the information she overhears to David, he solves the crimes, and they split the cash. Sadly, David's success leads to a price being put on his head. This is a rare, moderately serious episode, showing Moonlighting could have worked as a straight detective show, albeit one with wittier-than-usual dialogue, had the producers been happy with that direction. It's also a showcase for Bruce Willis, who gets to play drama and comedy in a way that paves the way for his role as John McClane. It's also that rur episode, in that the goofy, moonlighting climax kind of hurts the show a little bit. Don't get me wrong, though. Sleep Talking Guy is still a cracking episode in a season of cracking episodes. Funeral for a Doornail is notorious for featuring Maddie and David's first date. Well, almost. The case is nicely convoluted, with a man hiring the duo to call off a hit he arranged on himself because he can't live without his recently deceased wife, only for him to see her on the day the supposed assassination is to take place. But the main meat of the show is Maddie wondering why people can't just leave a single woman alone at weddings. She knows people will ask why she's not married or why she doesn't have kids yet, so to get those questions out of the way, she asks David to accompany her. So, not to put anyone in an uncomfortable situation, David asks that this not be a date, rather he be a paid escort. Moonlighting tackle these kind of issues a lot, with what would now be called woke feminism, but they're issues women face and still face. I've been quite impressed in this rewatch in how well the show looks at women and their place in the workplace. It's also very good at judging the characters. David and Maddie both can't open up because of issues in their past. And this is where most of their problems lie. They're scared of doing that to each other. They're scared of opening up to the other just in case the other doesn't feel the same way. If season two has been about anything, it's been about that. The season closes with Camille, guest starring Whoopi Goldberg. Goldberg plays a con artist who accidentally becomes a hero when she saves a senator from being shot. David gets the stupid idea of hiring her to bring attention to Blue Moon. The series has gotten more and more outlandish with its finales recently, sometimes ending abruptly without an epilogue, and sometimes having to wrap everything up really quickly. This is taken to the extreme at the end of this show, when the characters literally run off set, and then David and Maddie explain the ending because the episode's running long. And now... Hey... What are you doing? Sorry, babe. We're on a very tight schedule here. Props got to go back in the prop
1: room. You know. Excuse me. What I do know? you Oh, see you over. Over. we got see The limousine's here. i
2: taking my What is this?
1: Wait a sec. Wait a sec. We haven't even finished the story. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what happens to my character. Oh, all right, ho, ho, ho. It's all right, ho, ho, ho. Manny and I have done a ton of these. We'll explain what happens, all right? Tell me about This is idea. how it ends.
2: Okay. You see the light. Promise to mend your ways and become a better person. Well, that's the way it's gotta be. That's the way it's gotta be.
1: You you go to prison, you get your law degree, you write an incredible jailhouse novel, they make a movie about it. De Niro drops a lot of weight, he plays you. De Niro, huh? I can live with that. It's Goldberg, It's Nelson. been limousines are waiting. Thank you very much. Oh, oh
2: it's goodbye. so oh, oh, it. you Thank you so it. much.
1: Thank you so much. I'll
2: see you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for coming by. Bye.
2: Bye. 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 <laughs> me, can I
0: Seeing the sets is always fun, but also amusing is Sybil Shepherd's feet. Shepard didn't really like wearing shoes, and whenever the camera wasn't on her lower half, she wore trainers. Here, she literally changes footwear in seconds, but because of the gag, the producers don't even try to cover it up, she's just suddenly wearing Reebok trainers. If you go back and re-watch the show, spotting Sybil's trainers becomes a bit of fun that you can indulge in as you go along. Another fur bit of amusement as you re-watch the episodes is Bruce Willis's hair. Throughout the season, it's been changing colours, thickness and length, now, we know why this is nowadays, and in the next season, even the producers will start making gags about it, but looking back, it's fun to try and guess when he started wearing a piece. Some people don't seem to like this as a season finale, but I enjoyed it, and pretty much every episode this year. Season 2 was Moonlighting's apex as a series. The episodes were inventive, innovative and funny, and the production was almost on point. This was the season that the cast and crew produced the most episodes, 18 in total, and the season that the the behind-the-scenes turmoil was at its least egregious. The latter would become more of an issue next season, causing problems with the number of episodes produced. But surprisingly, in terms of quality, Season 3's output would be higher than Season 2. But that's for next time. Some walk by night, some
1: by my day. Nothing could change.
0: there with some walk by night, the theme from Moonlighting. Okay, let's have a look at the email sack. Rog McCarthy's email then. Looking at it as an idea, I should like the Hulk and Banner being opposed to each other and the Hulk being a monster. But my favourite Hulk is Hulk Smash. As for the Hulk killing, uh let's just not think about it. If we can ignore Wolverine killing a barful of ninjas every Wednesday, we can ignore the Hulk to. Yeah, but Wolverine kills. That's kind of his shtick. It's one of the reasons I don't particularly consider Wolverine to be a hero in the true sense of the word. Wolverine just arbitrarily seems to kill people and doesn't seem overly bothered by it. He doesn't seem to have any conscience about it. The Hulk is supposed to be a sympathetic character, but the minute that he's a killer, he's not. One of the interesting things is following the Bruce Jones run, and if you follow me on social media, you'll you'll have spotted this, I, um, I have continued to read the Hulk, and I went through Planet Hulk and World War Hulk, and now I'm on to Jeff Loves Red Hulk, and it's interesting that the impetus for Planet Hulk was Brian Bendis deciding arbitrarily that the Hulk had killed people, but then the minute you get away from Bendis' influence, you've got entire issues where Greg Pak wrote them, saying that the Hulk isn't a murderer. In fact, the the point of World War Hulk is that the Hulk isn't a murderer. So it kind of goes into my opinion that Bendis' stuff should be looked as an alternate universe thing and not part of the Marvel Universe. Because even writers and editors within the Marvel Universe don't seem to agree with him about that. Uh, And he doesn't have final say because the Hulk's not his character. So, good. Our next email is from Matt Prather. Hey, Andrew. Hello, Matt. I have not sent you as many missives heaping praise upon your wonderful podcast and I apologise. Well, you should. Uh, my ego isn't large enough that I don't like lots and lots of praise. Your episode has been great, as always. Well, thank you very much. I've just been taking in a lot of freelance work lately. Well, I hope I've been a good companion. Oh, I have. The podcast has been a great companion as I toiled away at my art desk, and I appreciate it. Well, at least it wasn't a great companion in the toilet, which is how I originally read that. Having watched Logan's run on first erring, I couldn't remember specifically how I felt about it, other than it was all right. Having listened to your summation of the series, I had my memory thoroughly jogged. May have to go back and watch some cherry-picked episodes. Yeah, watch the pilot. Watch the David Gerald one. Watch the Harlan Ellison one. That's pretty much it, really. There you go. I've saved you some time. Listening to you recounting your experience with The Hulk, continues Matt, struck a chord with me. I'm quite enamoured with the concept of The Hulk, but I've read very few of the comics. This television show was one of my favourites when it was on, and I always have had trouble finding runs that hold my interest. Not to say I don't enjoy some of the Peter David run or the random issues that I picked up over time. I just wanted it to be a consistent, enjoyable experience. And for whatever reason, it mostly just didn't connect with me. That being said, I think I could get into this, run. One of the, the nice things about doing a show like this is the internet hive mind will have you believe that in certain cases there are immutable truths. And it's interesting that you throw something out there on a podcast or an opinion or whatever where you say, well, actually, as in my case, the Bruce Jones run's actually pretty good. And to have the number of people that, that come back to you with, yeah, I like that run. Yeah, I like that. Oh, I'll give that run. Yeah, that sounds interesting. That's quite gratifying because it's one of those things that it suddenly does make you realize that Twitter's just this echo chamber of like-minded people following like-minded people and saying the same shit And outside of Twitter, those opinions don't really have any basis in reality. Like, you know, that Zack Snyder's a visionary genius. So, you know, it's nice to be able to to hear the other side of it. And that, you know, that Twitter isn't the be-all and end-all of people's opinion. Anyway, thanks, Matt. I hope I can continue to entertain you as you do your art projects. The final email today, because as you may have noticed, I've got a bit of a sore throat... Hello, Andy. Hello, Dan. Um, This email contains spoilers for No Time to Die, which I discussed in a, a previous episode. So you may want to skip to the end if you don't want to know how No Time to Die ends. I thoroughly enjoyed your recent return of the monster episode of The Palace, but the real highlight for me was your thoughts on No Time to Die. I always enjoy hearing your perspective on things and this was no different. I was a tad surprised you had such a big problem with the death of James Bond, but I can understand your reasoning. It didn't necessarily bother me for a couple of reasons. One, I had predicted the ending about two years ago. I'm not claiming that I'm psychic or anything, I just had a hunch that since the Daniel Craig era began with the origin of James Bond, then they might take the opportunity to close it out with his literal end. Two, I don't think it was that controversial. This one I blame on the internet. The way certain people were ranting about No Time To Die, I was expecting it would do something a lot more shocking than just killing off Bond. I mean, I didn't even notice anything that would trigger the idiots from the anti-SJW. Everything is woke crowd. But then again, what doesn't trigger those goons? Yeah, sorry Dan, but I don't know where you've been. But the very fact that there was a female and person of colour who was now 007 really upset a lot of people. Like, completely irrational. Even Fleming acknowledged that there were other 007s before Bond. So it makes sense that after Bond, there would be 007s. And those people were really upset by that. I haven't seen anybody upset by the Anna Diarmas Armas scene, but that could be because A, it's one of the best scenes in the movie, and B, Anna de Armas is just so adorable in everything she's in that maybe the fact that it was a woman presented as a, a competent officer was, was maybe accepted because, you know, she's great. Three, I was far more relieved that they didn't do what I feared they might do. Part of me was afraid that the reasoning behind killing Bond on screen was that the producers were going to validate that stupid fan canon theory that the name James Bond is just a code name that belongs to whatever agent gets assigned the number 007 and that all the actors who played James Bond previously were different people, including Daniel Craig, who was the latest incarnation. This theory is utter bollocks to anyone who's paid attention to the Bond movies. There are so many ways to debunk this myth, the largest being Bond short wedding to Tracy at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. The fact that Bond is a widow has been referenced multiple times, most notably the opening of For Your Eyes Only, where Bond visits his wife's grave. Admittedly, maybe I was being dumb for even thinking that they would even consider doing this. I'm just glad it didn't happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Dan 100%. I think that is one of the stupidest fan theories ever that the code name is James Bond 007 not just 007 again Fleming established that there were other 007s before Bond so how does that fit into your theory if you've ever read a book well the chances are you haven't read a book it's one of those things Bond's a fictional character he can be many many different people but he's still always the same James Bond you know just accept it Number four, I've already decided that both the Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig eras are alternate universes. This is probably the biggest reason why the death of 007 in No Time to Die didn't bother me as much as it should. Much like Spider-Man, where I felt the books have never been the same since 1998, I felt that the original continuity ended with Licence to Kill. Everything that came after 1989 felt off. When it comes to James Bond, I still plan on seeing each new film as they come out, but the movies from 62 to 89 are the ones I'll always like the best. See, mine has always been... I reckon that Connery and Lazenby and Moore are all the same continuity. Because like you said, Diamonds are forever opens with Bond now in the form of Sean Connery going after Blofeld for killing his wife, despite the fact that he was married as George Lazenby. And then again, as you point out in For Your Eyes Only, Roger Moore visits Tracy's grave. So, to me, Connery, Lazenby and Moore are all one continuity. And then, Tim Dalton and Pierce Brosnan kind of almost sort of work as another continuity in and of themselves. Although, GoldenEye establishes that, nine years earlier, Bond was Pierce Brosnan, even though he was Timothy Dalton. So, I don't know how that works. But, yeah, okay, they're they're kind of in their own semi- Continuity, and i suppose if you squint a bit you can compress the timeline that all of the adventures up to that point have happened to those two guys but not in the 60s and the 70s maybe in the 80s and 90s all right but when you get to daniel craig's era it is it has to be a hard reboot it can't be anything but a hard reboot because it starts with him becoming a double o in every other film We've seen him as a, a seasoned double O. He's been a double O for a long time. He's good at his job by that point. So Daniel Craig's stuff has to be a completely separate bubble pocket universe reality, if you want to give it a comics name. But that kind of doesn't work either because Judy Dench was Piers Brosnan's M, but it also Daniel Craig's M. And in No Time to Die. They're in a room that has paintings of previous M's on the wall. And yes, you see Judy Dench, but you also see Robert Brown, who was Roger Moore's M. So I think the thing with Bond is just don't think about it too much. Daniel Craig's is obviously this little pocket reality. And if it was up to me, the next one would just start and there'd be a gag about he's been away for a while, but now he's back and you'd go from there. That's how I'd do it you know. Dan continues, with all that being said, I still don't really have a problem with the in-story death in No Time to Die. I'm a little worried about the impact of what the on-screen death of James Bond will have on the movie industry. As you know, once Hollywood gets into the claws, into a trend they think is popular, they'll run it completely into the ground. We've already seen the killing off of beloved characters in movies that don't always go over well with the audience. The recent on-screen deaths of Han, Luke and Leia from the sequel trilogy are prime examples. And, I'll just interrupt, The Dark Knight Rises. I maintain they'd planned on killing Batman off in The Dark Knight Rises. That's how they planned to conclude that trilogy. I honestly think that. And I think someone at Warner Brothers said, "Eh, let's not kill Batman. But that's what I think anyway. Even the people who liked those films were like, if I knew you were going to kill them off the way you did, I'd rather you didn't bring them back at all. Which is pretty much me. That's pretty much me, Dan. I think The Last Jedi is the most innovative, interesting, brave, daring and bold Star Wars film since The Empire Strikes Back. I would sacrifice it for a sequel trilogy that made a lick of sense and actually gave those three characters the moment in the sun together. In The Force Awakens. I mean that ultimately ended up being a massive missed opportunity. With the death of Carrie Fisher. But the fact that you never see. Hamil, Ford and Fisher share the screen together. In the sequel trilogy. Is just stupid. It's, oh, I can't even wrap my head around. Who thought that was a good decision. Anyway. Dan concludes. Despite that Hollywood is probably just now looking at the box office. Numbers for no time to die. And think that killing off beloved characters are okay. That's what makes me nervous about Indiana Jones 5, which is currently filming as we speak. Are they planning to kill off Indy at the end of the film? I don't know, but the very idea makes me not want to see it. See, again, we're not going to see an Indiana Jones film to come out miserable. And if they're following George's continuity, they can't kill him off because we know that he's alive in the 90s with an eye patch. That's what I'd like to see in this film. I'd like to see him lose his eye so that it leads into Indiana Jones and, and the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. That's what I'd like to see. If they've got any brains, they won't kill Indiana Jones off because that's just... I don't want to go and see it. We've seen Ham die. We've seen Luke die. We've seen Leia die. We've seen Bond die. I don't want to see Indiana Jones die as well. Well, we saw Superman die. I mean, rather stupidly, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, I've rambled on enough. Until next time, cheers. Sincerely, Venkman, which is actually Dan Deleter. Uh No, that's, that's brilliant, that. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for that uh, thoughtful missive. I enjoyed that. My big problem with No Time to Die is Bond surrenders to death. That's how it seemed to me on first viewing. It's entirely possible upon subsequent viewings, I'll, I'll, I'll get a difference of opinion. Um, my problem with it is the film's 165 minutes, and as much as I've wanted to go and see it at the cinema again, I've just not had the time, it's amazing to me that there are people on, on podcasts like James Bond Radio, which is a brilliant podcast, who've been and seen the film like four or five times. And I'm like how have you fitted that in around your life you know it's, it's marvelous to me that you can fit that in because because i haven't anyway that about wraps it up for this time if you want to email in like rob matt and daniel uh heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is currently the email address drop me a line uh, i'll be back next time with the second part of my moonlighting retrospective hope you enjoyed it hope you enjoyed this hope you enjoyed the show i know i enjoyed doing it even with a sore throat And it looks like everything's going to be okay, eventually. Take care, and I'll see you all next time.